The sports world has been greening itself for most of the century, but despite these efforts, most fans have no idea. That changes now. Welcome to Green Sports Pod. Hosted by Lou Blaustein, Green Sports Pod highlights the successes, challenges, and opportunities to green the games we love to watch and play, and give you the chance to hear from the athletes who are taking positive environmental actions. Learn more and subscribe to the show today at greensportsblog.com. Hi there, I'm Lou Blaustein, your host for Green Sports Pod. Milos Ribic has one of the coolest jobs on the planet. As director of Adidas Ventures, Ribic serves as a venture capitalist of sorts within the apparel maker, focusing on finding exciting startups in which the company should invest. He's focused on two areas that will no doubt be of interest to Green Sports Pod listeners. Number one, sustainable materials like Adidas' partnership with Parlay for the Oceans to make athletic apparel from plastic ocean waste. And number two, sports media. How cool is that? So Milos, thanks for joining us. But before we get to your really cool job at Adidas Ventures, why don't you tell our listeners how you got to the company in the first place? I think that luck is one of those critical components. My role today blends two of my strong interest points, passions that I've done separately in my previous career. Today, my focus at Adidas is to invest in intersection of sustainability and materials and also sports and media. And these are all areas that I've done in my career previously over the past 10 years under the separate entities. 10 plus years ago, I, I was working at a, in a clean tech, doing clean tech venture investing at the beginning of the clean tech rise and trends in the US. Several years later, in grad school, I started a sports media company. Previously, I played water polo at UC Berkeley and coached water polo youth programs in the Bay Area. So, needless to say, sports is something that I'm very interested and passionate about. And so, now to be able to fast forward, to be able to work and to blend these two careers under one umbrella as Adidas is really the biggest draw for me to join the company. And it really happened through a relationship when the Adidas Ventures was looking to expand in the US. I happened to be introduced to the team via mutual contact. Talk about your work in this ventures division and bringing those two trends together or those two strands together environmental sustainability and the cool brand part? So I think the, those are all definitely nice to have, nice to have vision, commitment to the market, to sustainability that has really worked really well, and the consumer affinity towards the brand. How you said the cool part too, it's definitely nice to have. It definitely attracts partnerships and companies in this early stage market that are trying to get bigger brands as customers. So it definitely helps there. I think the underlying ongoing challenges is really volume economics. Any material, and if you want to repeat partly in other using a different material, it has to be affordable. It cannot be more than five times more expensive than the closest analog. So I think using the venture investment as a tool to lower that price by working with a team, portfolio company, or early stage team to do that is a critical work that needs to be done. And also, it's not just as an Adidas as an investor, we have to really construct the investment syndicate. And in most cases, more recently, the video consortium of partners, they want to be buying the same kind of a material and using it on different brands. Could you provide an example to give our audiences kind of a sense of what really this involves? 
most recent investment, a company called Mango Materials, they use CH4 methane to create polyester. So in this case, we partner with Patagonia and their venture team as well to co-invest together in this company and to really help them get to the most important inflection point to make such production affordable so that both Patagonia and Adidas can be buying at greater volumes. This technology exists already or is this a breakthrough yeah. technology? No, it exists already. Yeah. So this is taking methane, which could leach into the atmosphere and is a 30 times more potent greenhouse gas than CO2 and instead turn it into fabric? Yeah. So is this something that you guys and Patagonia are looking to scale up and you know what's kind of the time frame for this to really scale? So it depends. First, we need to work on that you know, really lower the cost of manufacturing of this process. We invested so that we can bring more people on board to this company and that we can really expand the throughput. And there are many technology unlocks that need to happen before both parties or anybody else commits to buying this material at a much greater scale. But needless to say, we've done it at this stage because we saw the potential. As you said, methane comes from landfills, wastewater facilities, it's in the minute, and so each of these facilities need to reduce it to really comply with all sorts of their own really CSR standards, or they're applied by EPA, anybody else, or you simply maybe you know they want to create a consumer use it as, a, as part of the consumer outreach. Then you know, having a partner that is willing to essentially buy that, take it from them, and create another product out of it is an interesting opportunity. It doesn't go to atmosphere. It continues to exist in another form, apparel. The landfills like it because that's a newfound source of revenue, I would imagine. That's the idea. If the cost of reforming that methane into fiber, if that works, if it's affordable, then, you know, win for everybody. And the plan. How long has this technology been out, been available or in existence? For about four years. There are many companies like Mango Material that have been out for four or five years funded by through various grants too risky to get major like venture funding traditional venture funding because of this uncertainty on volume economics number one and even if there is a volume economics in a price per pound how many parties are going to buy it and so is this kind of a template for the types of investments your unit is looking to make in other words the technologies exist but they're early stage and you're providing yep. new funding to get it to the next level, as opposed to starting a new technology. Every brand does both ways. This is just one approach. So it's sort of like rather than doing it in-house, you can also do it with other partners. And having more bets and pipelines of development increases the odds of having the product in the market. Having one really work. So I think it's definitely a, a good use of capital rather than just paying it to make it in-house, you can, there's, there's a capital out there to be attracted to really help scale technologies and it can become cheaper for the brand. And so we're really trying to unlock other forms of capital and larger volumes. Obviously, now it becomes harder than before. But by having a consortiums of buyers of such materials, it really attracts other funders, so impact investors to invest in such technologies, also grant R&D funds, and also makes it a little bit, we can de-risk it for additional venture investors. So I think creating such kind of investment syndicate is a good de-risked use of capital. It's really maximized de-risking. You're using only one form or the other, there's, the risk becomes higher. 
So I think we're trying to find these structures that take a long time to form, but at least they are cheaper for everybody. That sounds like a winning combination. Now, you mentioned that you're in partnership in part with Patagonia. Some listeners might say, wait a minute, they're competitors with Patagonia. Is this kind of like a friendly competition or you don't look at them as competitors? The devil is in the detail. The agreements get structured so that each brand has an ask and it's a conversation. Obviously, we've gone through that conversation that even an example of this company that I mentioned, you know, they're about two to three years out until there's significant volume scaling that could happen. Both parties can buy it. In the next two to three years, there's tremendous amount of risk. So if we are trying to lock our territories without really looking at the substance, what's going to take for this company to get to that point? And we are not really doing the job. We are just thinking about these ideal outcomes that likely will not happen unless we do them to work in the next two to three years. So I think having that focus is much more productive for any brand. And having consortiums like that, in my mind, that's the only way to succeed. Otherwise, today's brands cannot afford to pursue the sustainability missions as they were able to or at least have in mind up until like three months ago. So the brands that can do it, I applaud them. And now as I'm thinking about it, I mean, yes, Adidas and Patagonia are both in the athletic apparel market, but a lot of the products are different categories. So there isn't always so much overlap at the end product stage. So how much visibility does your unit get at the C-suite in Adidas? Because it seems to this outsider that it's really important. So it's a very traditional, most consumer goods are very traditional businesses. So venture is not an easy thing to understand. So we have been working towards that. We've governed by you know, the C-suite, you know, strategy and reporting. So we, they're aware of and very closely connected to what we do. Obviously, now priorities are different for every single brand. So even like how we structure these consortiums and how we really map it out to the upside for the brand and the near-term goals, I think that requires even more work. We do have visibility, but now the other priority that's even stronger than before is really revenue and really growing that. The DSS, you know, released the public numbers, you know, so there's a lot of work that needs to be done to improve those figures. So that is number one priority. So now we have to really kind of like readjust alongside such priorities. Now that we are in the middle of this COVID-19 reality, has that changed your job? And if so, how? Everybody's jobs on the planet have changed, including mine. Every venture investor, everybody's it's changed. Well, we are now, you know, sustainability is still remains a priority for the brand. I think that's the number one. And for most brands, sustainability is more important than ever. I think that's a very good thing to, to see now in the market. It's harder than ever to afford it and to pay for it. So now we have to really work even harder to really attract outside financial partners to help us fund these companies in order really for us to help them grow help them grow as becoming buyers of whatever they make. That just means you have to be smarter, sharper, and be more on point than ever before. One step forward, two steps backwards. That's the process. Got it. So now talk about the other side of the shop, so to speak, which is the media aspect of your venture business. Just share for the listeners how what that's all about. So the... Every sports stakeholder, leagues, teams, players, everybody has now a lot aging audience than ever before. I think that's because the younger audience, Gen Z or younger, is consuming content by a lot of different sources than they existed five years ago and not to mention 10 years ago. 
So because there are many different channels now and the attention span, and also now there's this new trend of gaming that has been growing quite a bit. So the attention spans have gone down tremendously. So every sports stakeholder needs to now is really prioritizes attracting an audience by creating content that is informative, easy to digest, attractive, engaging. And so trying to improve those metrics, trying to get a, to grow the population of Gen Z fans. Since that reality really happened pretty fast over the past two, three years, then is it, it opened a gap and a market need so that a lot of early stage companies got into that space and to really create now, you know, better essentially whichever way they approach it, better engagement metrics than traditional media that we have, ESPNs, Foxes, and so forth, Fox Sports. Now that venture investors are obviously being very good at finding the arbitrage in a market, they decide to fund companies like this under the assumption that the bigger sports stakeholders will be using the services paying for them. And eventually it will lead to acquisition once the engagement metrics is sufficient. And so obviously Adidas being in this market and being a very significant, one of the largest sports sponsors of leagues and teams and players, we have to really help the grow that sponsorship ROI. And by investing in these early stage companies with other investment syndicates, we are also creating a way for our business units to use the content. So whether it's a longer formats like docu-series, shorter formats in terms of the highlights or fan engagement in terms of blending the social and gaming component during the live streams. These are all very, very young formats that are really dominating in terms of getting young fans to, to stay on and watch more than a few seconds. Talk about a few of them. I imagine when I think of the new media and sports, I think of something like The Athletic. Am I on the right track? So Athletic is a written uh, content. So they are becoming a very good talent house. They've been attracting a lot of reporters from Wall Street, from New York Times to write content. And obviously, we've seen the tremendous growth of Athletic that consumers were willing to pay for to read content that was otherwise available for free. So that's an example of a written format. I think in terms of another format that is really dominant now, I think that every sports fan is watching The Last Dance. And it's obviously a docu-series because it's intriguing. It really keeps us on the edge of our seats. It's behind the scenes that we've never seen before. And it's Michael Jordan and it's sports. (laughs) Yeah, we have nothing else to watch. That's right. Yeah, after the NFL draft, this is it. That's right. So Unless we play video games. And so... This is, you know, it's even with other choices, I think the, the audience will be very, and so the viewership. And so this one is obviously off the charts because there's nothing else going on. But what that allowed for younger fans to really familiarize with Michael Jordan in ways they've never been able to. So unless this was created, anybody that's high school today or in college not really have a chance to even think about it. It's a, unless they watch Space Jam and that isn't the same thing. No, they wouldn't watch it. Unless it's offered by Disney Plus or Quibi or Netflix, they wouldn't watch it. Is a company like DAZONE, is that more of a... So these are large, so they are, these are most like media rights holders, buyers, essentially. So they're buying media rights that they determine they can get enough subscribers and get an ROI through that. And so they're very large, very well-funded media rights, essentially holding companies and offering subscription, OTT subscription. So that's a longer format. Obviously, that requires a lot of capital to acquire that. In terms of these longer live streams, what we've looked at is sports that don't have any coverage but have a live stream because technology is cheaper 
than ever. And there are fan bases that would actually would be willing to watch their companies that's in that market, like Flow Sports, Bowler TV. And on one end, offering grassroots, on the other, companies offering, offering like, you know, long tail sports, so the ones that we don't have a prime time coverage. Like a, maybe that might be lacrosse or volleyball, or is it something even less than that? Even German Basketball League I got in the U.S. to watch it, as an example, if they choose to. So obviously the market will be smaller, but now that exists as a product that we can subscribe to. So that's interesting because of every sport should be highlighted. Every sport deserves to be broadcasted. And these companies really are definitely serving, definitely you know, creating a market offering that there is so far sufficient subscribers for it. Boulder TV does it for grassroots basketball and volleyball. And we know that, well, now everybody's at home, but before parents are working, commuting, trying to really fit a kids' basketball sports schedule, sports schedules, now that all the families can watch it on the phone. Even grandparents, aunts and uncles, they can watch it and pay a subscription for it to watch the family member compete, which before was harder to do. And now also, and you can give it in bite-sized bites, which appeals to that shorter attention span. Yeah. Company Overtime has done really, really well in for grassroots basketball. So they're featuring high school basketball stars and for high school audience. And that's not something that ESPNs in the world are not really focusing on because it's a small market relative to the other markets that exist. So this company, over time, we're actually investing in the company and they are building the audience and building the content. And then when you, when Adidas invests in one of these companies, I'm imagining that branded content is part of that deal. So in this case, it was, we didn't really lock it down to be part of the deal, that there was an opportunity to do it if for different reasons we didn't. It's only some approach that we'd like to do. But then also bigger brands have really access to already very big media budgets that are producing significant ROIs. So this becomes additional content offering that produces ROI. But then the challenge becomes into, you know, is it comparable ROI to, let's say, sponsoring NFL and NFL films, which or NBA or content that really comes out of that? that has a broader audience for a dollar, each dollar, there's a significant ROI. So when you compare it to a just one smaller market segment, it's you know, a different metric to compare it with. But then there is a grassroots metrics that are needed and each brands are focusing on. Then if we just look at an isolation grassroots metrics, then it becomes interesting. And so we didn't lock that down early on because we had a bigger portfolio to work on. And so it really didn't make sense. And Parlay, as Green Sports blog, readers will know that we are a huge fan of Parlay for the Oceans. And in fact, you know, I'm waiting for the day when teams, they don't have just one Parlay for the Oceans day or game, but that is their main uniform instead of Mm -hmm. the third kit, so to speak. Is that something that might be down the road? Could be. (laughs) Really, like it depends on people that are running this business units. They decide on how they want to approach that. Great. And so in your role as director of Adidas Ventures, are you looking for ways to kind of create an intersection of the materials and sustainability side with the media side? Or is that more something that marketing or another function? It's two separate areas of focus. They have nothing to do with each other. And both areas really focused on the Gen Z audience because Gen Z audience cares about climate change and cares about what they wear. It's a form of expression. It's a form of what we wear. How do we save the planet? So they're buying a lot of secondhand clothes because of that, as an example. 
And then separate is how they consume content. So the two different kind of triggers for behavior. And our venture really mission is to be looking to invest to find solutions that would really satisfy that. And so it's two completely separate entities or endeavors, but a similar audience. Same audience, just two different approaches that are really independent. Got it. What are the metrics upon which you guys are judged? What does success look like? First and foremost, always we want to make sure the investment that companies are growing and growing in value. And so that's the traditional really metric. Second one is that we really create this, that our business unit that is eventually becomes a customer of portfolio companies. So we need to get it to that point. And the third one is that, as you know, it's the ultimate success metrics, that there's a new revenue created as a result of business unit working with a company we invested in. Going forward, is there, if you're looking at, this is going to be a really tough question because we're in the coronavirus reality right now, but if you're looking at five years down the road, do you have a sense of, okay, we need to have this many projects on the sustainable material side and why projects on the media side, or it's what does the long-term plan look like? Impossible to tell. There's not one indicator that will get us to put a figure together. Got it. Widening out the lens a bit, how does Adidas work with other sports stakeholders around sustainability and climate? I think two interesting examples are NHL and MLS, only because these are two sponsored leagues by Adidas. And what we are seeing is that each league really understands that it's important to have how you help climate change messaging. Also, like what's interesting to kind of to work with Adidas on that because Adidas has made actually product and considerable revenue by using ocean plastic into fiber into making shoes and shirts. And that became a really critical part of the overall branding and priority for Adidas. Obviously, that makes it very easier and approachable for these leagues to not only have jerseys made out of the same fiber. And so they use that to really highlight to the audience how they're creating a better saving the oceans. So that's the first thing, but also very various kinds of activations around and then creating a branding. around. And so I think that's been very practical for both leagues to really use it as part of their overall CSR strategy and portfolio to work with a partner that's sponsored and has a product that has a strategy that has already like branding around it. And they really use that for their own branding. So I think it really helped them. But what's also interesting that, and I saw that firsthand during Super Bowl, is every brand has any form of an activation during a you know, large sports event, especially Super Bowl. So Adidas had their own and in a facility where it was really showcased on football players and they came through the sponsor by Adidas and a little bit of art, a significant portion was really focused around parlay because that is the integral part of the brand. So one way to look at it is, yes, we're celebrating athletes, we're celebrating also our sustainability mission equally. Milos, thank you so much for joining us today and providing these insights into a part of Adidas' business that I'm guessing very few of any of our listeners know about and yet is very important, both from the company's health and the planet's health. So I wish you the best as we move forward through coronavirus into a better place. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Green Sports Pod, hosted by Lou Blaustein. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And head on over to greensportsblog.com, the source for news and commentary at the intersection of green and sports. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Green Sports Pod.